You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com You know Yeah, you know What must say? Fucking haters, you know I'm blind to you Them a smile and a laugh Them would the love to see you fall by the wayside Them all a dig up your past Pray for you don't fall fast Them trigger mode from blast Like them not afraid Welcome my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report I am your host James Corbett Podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan On this 6th day of June 2010 I'd like to invite the listeners, as always, to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, ClimateGate.tv, ReportageBook.com, and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, as well as those websites that help to support, broadcast, syndicate, and otherwise distribute this podcast, including RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, ZeroPointRadio.com, MediaMonarchy.com, TragedyAndHope.com, and CascadiaPublicRadio.org, where you can find small file size, easy to download versions of this podcast and other podcasts if you have limited bandwidth or a slow internet connection. I'd also like to remind listeners that the Corbett Report is completely independent media and as such is brought to you by you. So if you do have the ability to help support this podcast, please consider doing so by clicking on the donate button on the homepage CorbettReport.com. But right now we have a lot to get to today, so let's get straight into today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 6th day of June 2010. And now for the real news. Making headlines this week, the highly controversial Predator drone strikes in Pakistan, which have killed over 687 civilians and just 14 alleged Al-Qaeda fighters since Obama took office, are being credited with another success. The site group is reporting that Al-Qaeda has confirmed the death of the fictional organization's supposed third-in-command in an internet message last week. Mustafa al-Yazid, also known as Abu Sayyid al-Mazri, was reportedly killed in a Predator drone bombing on May 21st along with his wife, three daughters, his grandchild, and unidentified others. This is not the first time that al-Yazid has been reported dead. In August 2008, it was reported that he had been killed in an airstrike on the Afghan border. Nor is al-Yazid the only al-Qaeda fighter to have been killed and or captured on multiple occasions. In March 2004, the AP reported that al-Qaeda in Iraq leader Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was killed in an American bombing. In January 2005, China Daily reported Zarqawi had been arrested in Bakuba. Later that month, Voice of America reported that he had been arrested and then released by Iraqi police in Fallujah. In May 2005, the UPI reported that Zarqawi had been evacuated from Iraq after being injured, and in June 2005, the Saudi newspaper Al-Madina reported that Zarqawi had again been killed in fighting and buried in Fallujah. 
Similarly, in March of 2007, the Iraqi Interior Ministry claimed that they had captured infamous al-Qaeda spokesman Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. The U.S. military denied the report, and the ministry retracted their statement. In May 2007, the Interior Ministry reported al-Baghdadi had been killed by occupation forces north of Baghdad. In July 2007, the U.S. military officially announced that Baghdadi was in fact a fictional character who had been invented as a way to give an Iraqi face to the foreign-led insurgent movement in Iraq. Despite this, Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki reported Baghdadi had been captured once again by Iraqi security forces in April 2009. Then, in April of this year, Baghdadi was reportedly killed once again in an American airstrike along with Abu Ayyub al-Mazri, who himself had been reportedly killed once before in May 2007, and then rose from the dead to be captured by Iraqi security forces in Mosul in May 2008. No word yet on when al-Yazid will rise from the dead to be killed or captured once again. In other news, the annual Bilderberg Conference is receiving unprecedented coverage in the international press as millions around the world begin to discover the existence of the elitist meeting. This year's Bilderberg is taking place in Sitges, Spain, on the outskirts of Barcelona, and is set to wrap up today. Confirmed attendees of this year's meeting include the White House Special Envoy to Afghanistan, Richard Holbrook, Deutsche Bank CEO Josef Ackermann, President and CEO of TD Bank Edmund Clark, Barclays Chairman and Senior BBC Director Marcus Agius, Finnish Finance Minister Jyrki Katainen, and former Microsoft CEO Bill Gates, who pretended that he was attending an event for the Global Health Institute in Spain, but when pressed, admitted he was actually in Spain to address the Bilderberg gathering. Charlie Skelton reported in the UK's Guardian newspaper this week that a conversation that had been overheard between three Bilderberg organizers at the Dolce Sitges Hotel before the resort was closed to the public on Wednesday had centered on Alex Jones's infamous bullhorning of the group in Ottawa in 2006. They were very close to the hotel, said one. Another asked, did they ever try to attack? The first person replied, no, but it was very scary. The third added, this is the negative side of the welfare state. People have enough income so they can do this. It's like a permanent threat. Veteran Bilderberg journalist Jim Tucker of the American Free Press has already begun reporting some of the discussions that his sources inside Bilderberg indicate have been taking place at this year's conference. One source indicated that some people who have been invited to this year's conference decided not to attend because of the unprecedented scrutiny that the group has been receiving in recent years has made it a very unpopular event for elected politicians to attend. Another source indicated that one Bilderberg attendee had admitted that the anthropogenic climate change proponents have been whipped and that carbon taxes and other such agendas have been stalled. Another object of conversation at this year's conference is the possibility of an American airstrike on Iran. You're saying they are moving towards green lighting or it has been green lighted? Uh, they're uh, tilting heavily toward green lighting uh, U.S. attack on Iran. Uh, they're not 100% in agreement, but the uh, majority of the Bilderberg kids favor U.S. airstrikes on Iran. And there will be, some, uh, of course, some more profiteering. And when you spill the lifeblood of our young men and the hearts blood of our women, you make money. Uh, you, uh, these are well, plus, some... isn't that a political diversion during their, 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 their banking looting? Oh, uh, well, they uh it has that virtue too. It's also a diversion, but he also uh, uh, make money on uh, these are uh, 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 guys in manufacturing. You make money when you're making tanks and airplanes.
Look for continued coverage of this year's conference as more details emerge from inside sources, and stay tuned to the Corbett Report for a follow-up interview with Bilderberg researcher Daniel Estulin about what was discussed this year. Finally this week, the WHO swine flu pandemic hype is once again in the news. Last Thursday, WHO Director General Margaret Chan indicated that the pandemic first declared as a top-level Phase 6 pandemic emergency by the WHO in June 2009 is still a pandemic, and a reassessment of that status will not be conducted until mid-July of this year. The announcement came on the exact same day as a startling new joint report on the WHO and its role in hyping the pandemic emergency from the esteemed British medical journal BMJ and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. The report does nothing to help the reputation or standing of the WHO, already severely damaged from numerous investigations by the Council of Europe and others into how the organization relied on experts with direct financial interests at stake to declare a pandemic that generated billions of dollars for the vaccine manufacturers who they were linked to. The report reads in part, Quote, key scientists advising the World Health Organization on planning for an influenza pandemic had done paid work for pharmaceutical firms that stood to gain from the guidance they were preparing. These conflicts of interest have never been public, publicly disclosed by the WHO, and WHO has dismissed inquiries into its handling of the AH1N1 pandemic as conspiracy theories. This past flu season, in fact, turned out to be one of the mildest on record, with far fewer people dying from the H1N1 pandemic virus than die from the regular flu. And as a result, millions of doses of unused and unwanted experimental H1N1 vaccines, purchased at the cost of billions of dollars by countries around the world, are being disposed of. Despite all of this criticism, the WHO has yet to admit any wrongdoing or culpability for the pandemic hype. Now stay tuned for episode 132 of the Corbett Report, Meet the Southern Poverty Law Center, where we examine the charitable organization that makes a fortune off of peddling hate. Welcome to episode 132 of the Corbett Report, Meet the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, as you'll discover as soon as you go to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website on splcenter.org and click on who we are, you can find out that the Southern Poverty Law Center is, quote, a nonprofit civil rights organization dedicated to fighting hate and bigotry and to seeking justice for the most vulnerable members of society. Founded by civil rights lawyers Morris Dees and Joseph Levin Jr. in 1971, the SPLC is internationally known for tracking and exposing the activities of hate groups. Our innovative Teaching Tolerance program produces and distributes, free of charge, documentary films, books, lessons plans, and other materials that promote tolerance and respect in our nation's schools. We are based in Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the modern civil rights movement, and have offices in Atlanta, New Orleans, Miami, Florida, and Jackson, Mississippi. End quote. And one of the featured links on the homepage, and indeed on every page of splcenter.org, is a link to the Intelligence Report, the Southern Poverty Law Center's award-winning quarterly magazine on hate and extremism. So what is there to possibly find at fault with an organization like this that is dedicated to the wonderful work of exposing hate and bigotry and calling it out, drawing attention to it, and rallying people against it? Well, of course, there would be nothing wrong with that, 
if that's what the SPLC was really and truly interested in doing. But that is obviously not what they're interested in doing, which is why we are about to meet the real Southern Poverty Law Center. And perhaps the best way to do that is to meet the editor of the Intelligence Report, Mark Potok, who seems to pop up at every possible opportunity to talk about those vile, evil, hate-filled people who don't believe that the government is working in their best interests. The Southern Poverty Law Center issues every year uh, an analysis of what happened in the prior year uh, in amongst hate groups and other groups on the radical right. In years past, we've concentrated exclusively on hate groups, on race-based groups, uh, like the Klan and neo-Nazi groups. This year, uh, we took a much broader look at the radical right in general because it has grown so very much. What we found was really something quite extraordinary. We haven't seen anything like this for years. Uh, we saw, first of all, hate groups are at record levels right now. On top of that, we saw groups that are all about immigrants, anti-immigration groups like the so-called Minutemen groups that have grown by 80% uh, in just the last year. And most astoundingly of all, we saw a real explosion uh, in militias uh, and the larger anti-government patriot movement. In fact, there was a growth of 244%. There were 309 uh, new militia and patriot groups that appeared just in the year 2009. It was really quite extraordinary. So what's behind the rise in the militia movement? How do they operate? What separates these movements from legitimate government opposition and the right to free speech? Joining us is Mark Potok, who is the director of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which conducted the militia study that Caroline just talked about. Good to talk to you, sir. So specifically, where do you get proof, uh, aside from some isolated incidents, that this is a growing trend across the country? Sure, fair enough question. I, I don't think it's at all isolated. We've got not only reports, all kinds of evidence uh, of these groups actually doing training in the woods as they did back in the 90s. Uh, there's a, a huge uh, number of these groups that have essentially come back to life, or in many cases, at least 50 we've been able to find, uh, where new groups have formed, and it's probably a good many more than that. In just a minute, we'll get to the Tea Party's response to this report. But first, let's bring in Mark Potok, director of the Intelligence Project for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mark, have you ever seen numbers like this? Not in my tenure doing this work. I've been doing this for close to 15 years, and I haven't seen anything like this. I mean, the comparison, of course, is to the 90s, when we saw so much activity from militias uh, and other anti-government patriot groups. And, of course, that's the sector of the radical right. Uh, that we're really saying has exploded over the last year. Uh, a minor correction to what you said, the growth in hate groups, real race-based groups, 55% uh, has been over the last decade or so. That's slowed a bit, but when you look at the whole grouping of the various kinds of groups on the radical right, uh, extremist, nativist groups, uh, patriot groups, and hate groups, it's astounding. We've seen an overall growth of something like 40%. All together, those three strands of the radical right uh, are really the most volatile uh, elements out there, and they amount to something like 1,500 groups. Now, all of that would be quite funny if it wasn't actually intended to be serious and, in fact, was taken seriously by at least some of the brainwashed zombies who do take the corporate news for their gospel truth about what's going on in the world today. 
And all of that is unfortunately only preamble to what was really a startling document that the Southern Poverty Law Center released this uh, April. In fact, the day before April 19th, wow, surprise, surprise, the Intelligence Report released their summer 2010 edition entitled Meet the Patriots. Yay, Meet the Patriots. Yes, that's right. People who actually care about their country are, of course, hate-filled people who need to be watched closely. And that's the main thrust of this special report, and I will, of course, put the link up so you can read it for yourself and make your own decisions. But uh, let's just go through some of the highlights. Basically, this is a compendium of uh, pot shots at random people who actually stand up against uh, injustice when it's committed by government against government's own people. And uh, the, they have even gone so far as to give each and every individual on in this list a catchy little title that uh, will make them easy to remember for those people who, who need shortcuts to real thinking and actually understanding what people are saying in and for themselves. So, for example, uh, Gary Franchi, who many of my listeners will probably know from the Restore the Republic website and from for his reality report show, which of course is quite uh, well done and I would certainly suggest people check it out for themselves at uh, RestoreTheRepublic.com. But Gary Franchi is not Gary Franchi, he's the FEMA fabulist, like some sort of Batman villain or something uh, a comic booky like that. Or uh, for example, we have Joe Bannister, who many of my listeners will probably know quite well from Aaron Russo's seminal work, America, Freedom to Fascism, an excellent documentary that really is one of the base documentaries from which anyone can build an understanding of what's really happening in their government. Joe Bannister is not Joe Bannister, he's the repentant tax man. And uh, we have... Uh, Bulldozer versus Bulldozer, Martin Red Beckman. Yes, this 80-year-old man is just such a threat to the system that they have to include him in their list of people to watch out for because of their vile hatred towards the government. And on and on and on. In fact, many of these people have either been mentioned on my show before or actually interviewed on the show before, like Stuart Rhodes, founder of The Oath Keepers, or people who I think many of my listeners will be familiar with or should be familiar with. And let's just take one specific example just to see how ridiculous this report really is. We have uh, Catherine Bleich, who is a 26-year-old, but uh, going under the ridiculous title Needle of Estrogen for this little report. And the Southern Poverty Law Center saw to it to write this about her. Catherine Bleich, one of the few female leaders in the resurgent patriot movement, runs the Liberty Restoration Project and has become a popular speaker on the patriot circuit. It's quite frightening the amount of power and authority that our government has assumed for themselves, Bleich told the intelligence report. They say, we are the supreme being. We have the guns. We are going to do it our way. Bleich of St. Louis, Missouri, speaks passionately about the anger that's fueling the movement. It's so hard to start a small business, and once you start one, it's hard to keep it open. My parents are being audited for the past six years while Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, who doesn't pay his taxes, now gets to oversee the IRS, she said. People are losing their homes. People are losing their jobs. People are frustrated and looking for answers. Like many other patriot leaders, Bleich charges that the government is behind these economic woes. The dollar has been systematically destroyed, and that is not the American people's doing. That is the central bank. The central bankers... What they do is they go from country to country 
and they destroy currency and bring themselves lots of power and lots of wealth. Though Bleich said no one in the movement with whom she's worked wants violence, she added that people will be driven to defend themselves if the country continues on its current course. The actions of our federal government are going to create violence, and my goal is to try and stop it peacefully before it gets to that point. I'm trying to follow the channels that are still afforded to me to talk to people face-to-face, but they're going to try and take away my ability to communicate with people of a like mindset. Bleich has taken part in key Patriot events, attending the seminal May 2009 Jekyll Island meeting that helped lay the groundwork for the resurgence of the movement. She also spoke at the Freedom 21 conference in Oklahoma City last August, and she was the main organizer for the Midwest Liberty Fest in Illinois last October. But it's not all thankless work. A glam shot of Bleich was featured in the 2009-2010 Ladies of Liberty Alliance calendar. Many women involved in the liberty movement have experienced the frustrating feeling of isolation when they look around and realize they are just a needle of estrogen in a haystack of testosterone, she wrote last August. The Ladies of Liberty Alliance is a brand new organization working to end that feeling of isolation forever. End quote. And if you're wondering exactly what in that report there was to fear or to ridicule or to deride about Catherine Blaish, even from the own, her own words or the words that the Southern Poverty Law Center themselves wrote about her, you're not the only one. In fact, I don't think there's anything at all that could be taken of offense of in that article, even if you're trying to portray her as some sort of purveyor of dangerous government conspiracy theories. She specifically says that it's not about violence and she's trying to talk to people face to face. That does not sound like a monster by anyone's stretch of the imagination, except perhaps for Mark Potok, Morris Dees, and the other, well, hate pimps of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And perhaps a clearest example that I can give of that is to actually play a clip, a very important and very powerful clip of Catherine Bleich talking to the Austin City Council about their decision, which they are currently making, whether or not to accept funding for what's known as fusion centers or federally funded law enforcement centers that were funded through the Homeland Security Department in order to fuse together all of the intelligence and analysis in an area. And I'll put up a link so you can find out more about that directly from dhs.gov. But basically, yes, these are represent an extreme infringement on civil liberties and it, an extreme encroachment and centralization of power of the federal government into local law enforcement and thus need to be vociferously opposed at every opportunity. And that's exactly what Catherine Bleich did at a recent meeting of the Austin City Council. So let's listen to a little bit of her speech so we can hear directly what this hate monger Catherine Bleich needle of estrogen has to say about civil liberties and the encroaching police state. My name is Catherine Bleich. I'm a new resident of the Austin area. I came here from Missouri. I founded an organization in Missouri called the Liberty Restoration Project, and we focus on personal privacy as well as state sovereignty. And I became very much so involved in fusion center research after the Missouri Information Analysis Center in Missouri profiled me as a potentially radical, violent militia member because of my political beliefs. 
So these fusion centers have a very intimate impact on my life, and that put me on a track of in-depth research. I partnered up with, our organization partnered up with TAG, and we've been traveling the country, visiting fusion centers, and speaking to people in their communities about fusion centers and how they can get involved with them. And thankfully, in Missouri, we were successful in having that report that I mentioned that profiled people like me who support various political ideologies. That was retracted. And we went through four legislative hearings with our state legislature in order to get this situation dealt with. And it's an ongoing process. We're still dealing with it up there. I have moved down here, but our organization is still focused on that. Unfortunately, no one's been held accountable for that. Yeah, the director of the Fusion Center, they lost their job, but they got moved to another department. They still have a taxpayer-funded position, and the repercussions of that document are still reverberating throughout the nation right now. So I want to speak to some concerns that I have with this Fusion Center moving forward today, and I want to ask that you all consider the gravity of the vote you will be making. If you do choose to move forward with this, I fear it is in haste, and I feel that you may regret that decision because the opportunity for even more scandal to rock the Austin area is huge. If you consider that in Arizona, we were told by their Fusion Center staff that if you're planning a rally in Arizona, they will run your name through a Fusion Center database with no criminal predicate, although criminal predicate is what they're supposed to be based upon, correct? Uh, the Maryland State Police, through their fusion center, entered 56 anti-war activist names into a database, a terror database. You have in Oklahoma, uh, we visited them earlier this year, and they said that other than them, there were only two other fusion centers in the nation that had privacy policies that were accepted by DHS. So that shows you right there that, you know, the privacy policy that y'all have been working on down here that's a living document, and it may, it may or may not be as constraining as some of the activists here originally thought, especially considering most fusion centers operate without one. And in the Seattle Fusion Center, there was an FBI analyst who was assigned there by the FBI, but he worked for the State Fusion Center, and he spent two years infiltrating an anti-war group to the point where he was managing their databases and sitting down intimately in their meetings. I'm not trying to say that anyone who works for the Austin Police Department or anyone here locally has bad intentions, but the fact of the matter is these fusion centers are riddled just completely with scandal after scandal after scandal, instances of fraud, abuse, misuse. And I think that you all, as the representatives of the people of this community, owe it to them to do them the service of properly vetting this fusion center before you move forward and potentially put people at risk. And it goes further than that. Not only was I profiled for my political beliefs by my government in my state, and I had to fight to have that retracted, but because of that fight, the Southern Poverty Law Center, an institution that does training for Fusion Center staff, now has my face and my name up on their website, a website that is designed to identify people who commit acts of violence and hate and who are racist, and that is not me at all. Those are the people who get paid by the DHS to train Fusion Center staff on how to identify potential threats. Is that what we want to be doing here in Austin? You know, I'm moving down here. I came down here in February. I plan to be a long-term resident of Austin. I left one community that was treating me, I felt, very horribly because of my political beliefs through the use of their Fusion Centers. I don't want to come to another community like this. 
And, and when you consider that you guys do have no refusal weekends, where you do take blood from people forcibly, when you consider that just a week ago that grant application still was calling for the Fusion Center to assist in uh, the, the implementation of rapid inoculations in the case of a, of a mass crisis, it begs me to question, if you're willing to forcibly take something out of my body, how do I know you're not going to will, willing forcibly put something into my body? And I don't think that law enforcement or a fusion center have any role in that whatsoever. Okay, all right. I trust that the point is well made that, yes, the SPLC really doesn't like anyone who happens to disagree with this current administration, certainly on the left or Indeed, anyone who spouts anything that they deem to be anti-government, no matter how spot-on that analysis is, no, these are vile, hate-spewing people that need to be watched closely. Well, I think my listeners will understand what's really going on here, and we'll see through that. But is there anything more to this, or is the Southern Poverty Law Center simply another organization that makes money from donations by spewing conspiracy theories about people spewing conspiracy theories. Well, uh, I think it goes much, much deeper than that. And as always, the Corbett Report has the documentation to prove it. So let's start digging into the SPLC to discover what they're really about. But first, I'd like to give a tip of my hat to a poster on the Prison Planet Forum going by the name Sok Eng Rez, who posted a post on April 2nd, 2010, full of very interesting uh, information about the Southern Poverty Law Center, and more importantly, with at least the uh, sources of that information, so that I, I could go back and check it for myself, which is always helpful, and which is why I put the documentation list together for every single episode of the Corbett Report, and I certainly hope that people are making use of this, and also, of course, the links in the Sunday Update videos, so that you can go and check the information for yourself, because that is, as always, the most important thing. So let's start checking through some of the documentation that Sok Ingres was uh, kind enough to post on the Prison Planet forum, and of course I'll include a link to that post so you can check that out for yourself as well, as well as the following documents. First up, we have an article from the Washington Times by Wesley Perdue, editor-in-chief, under the title, When a Hate Crime is Something to Love. Quote, Black pain and white piety is a winning combination in contemporary America, as any number of phony liberals have demonstrated over the years. Nobody manipulates this combination better than Morris Dees. Few do it as well. Racism in America has become big business, real and otherwise, which is no doubt why Bill Clinton, who got caught several years ago peddling a phony story about church burning in Arkansas, says he'll be getting into it from his $700,000 a year offices in Midtown Manhattan. The appetite for sensation, even when it is a half-baked sensation, is insatiable, and Morris Dees could show him how to profit from it. Mr. Dees is a lawyer in Montgomery, Alabama, who is the national chairman of something called the Southern Poverty Law Center, which sounds like the hideout of a noble band of warriors against hate crime and other racial wrongs, but is actually a fundraising scheme that could teach televangelists a thing or two. In fact, maybe it has. Morris Dees, says his former partner, is the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker of the civil rights movement, though I don't mean to malign Jim and Tammy Faye. 
Mr. Dees took in $44 million from gullible contributors, mostly white, in 1999, and spent $13 million actually trying to help the poor and beaten down, mostly black, fight for their civil rights. He has been well known for years to reporters in the South, most of whom have never written about who he really is. Mr. Dees, like the late I.F. Stone or the living Jesse Jackson, became a pet rock of the media, engaged in a calling so noble that it is regarded as tasteless or at least suicidal to notice that he runs around naked. The Reverend Billy Don Moyers endorses his fundraising schemes, so what else does anyone need to know? Ken Silverstein recently told another version of the Morris Dees story in Harper's Magazine, and it's a tale well told. What captured Mr. Silverstein's attention is the most recent project of the Dees Law Center, a kit called Teaching Tolerance that is available for only $30 on the Dees website, with the firm but meaningless assurance that it's a $325 value. Why not $425? $525? What the buyer gets is a compendium of hate crimes that any casual newspaper reader already knows about, described in vivid ink of a purple hue, spreading the alarm that the Ku Klux Klan, heavily armed white citizen militias, and six Nazi panzer divisions that never made it to Omaha Beach are bearing down on Cleveland, or maybe Providence. Even a journalist for the 11 o'clock eyeball news on channels 3 through 10 would blush twice trying to peddle stuff like this. Then we get the dirty little secrets of hate crime reporting. Horrifying as such incidents are, writes Mr. Silverstein, hate groups commit almost no violence. More than 95% of all hate crimes, including most of the incidents Mr. D cites, bombings, church burnings, school shootings, are perpetrated by lone wolves. Indeed, membership in the Ku Klux Klan, which is the most lucrative D's fundraising target, has shrunk so dramatically that the Klan would have been out of business years ago, but for FBI infiltration. In some chapters, the only members with paid-up dues are FBI informants. In one case by Mr. Silverstein, Morris Dees won a judgment for a black woman whose son was killed by Klansmen. She received $51,875 as settlement. Mr. Dees, according to an investigation by the Montgomery advisor, pulled in $9 million from fundraising solicitation letters that featured a particularly gruesome photograph of the grieving mother's dead son. Mr. Dees, who pays himself an annual salary of $275,000, offered the grieving mother none of the $9 million her son's death made for him. End quote. Moving right along, we have this report from Alexander Coburn of Counterpunch.org under the title King of the Hate Business. Quote, What is the arch-salesman of hate-mongering Mr. Morris Dees of the Southern Poverty Law Center doing now? He's saying that the election of a black president proves his point. Hate is on the rise! Send money! Without skipping a beat, the mail-shot moguls who year after year make money selling the notion there's been a right resurgence out there in the hinterland with massed legions of haters have used the election of a black president to say that, yes, hate is on the rise and America ready to burst apart at the seams, with millions of extremists primed to march down Main Street draped in clan robes, a copy of Mein Kampf tucked under one arm and a Bible under the other, available for sneak photographs from minions of Chip Burlett, another salesman of the Christian menace, ripely endowed with millions to battle the legions of the cross. 
Ever since 1971, U.S. Postal Service mailbags have bulged with these fundraising letters, scaring dollars out of the pockets of trembling liberals aghast at his lurid descriptions of hate-sodden America in dire need of legal confrontation by the SPLC. Nine years ago, Ken Silverstein wrote a devastating commentary on Dees and the SPLC in Harper's, dissecting a typical swatch of Dees' solicitations. At that time, as Silverstein pointed out, the SPLC was the wealthiest civil rights group in America, with $120 million in assets. As of October 2008, the net assets of the SPLC were $170,240,129. The merchant of hate himself, Mr. Deeds, was paid an annual $273,132 as chief trial counsel, and the SPLC's president and CEO, Richard Cohen, $290,193. Total revenue in 2007 was $44,727,257, and program expenses, $20 million. $804,536. In other words, the Southern Poverty Law Center was raising twice as much money as it was spending on its proclaimed mission. Fundraising and administrative expenses accounted for $9 million, leaving $14 million to be put in the center's vast asset portfolio. The 990 nonprofit tax record for the SPLC indicates that the assets fell by about $50 million last year, meaning that, like almost all nonprofits, the SPLC took a bath in the stock crash. So, what was the end result of all that relentless hoarding down the years as people of modest means, scared by D's, sent him their contributions? Were they put to good use? It doesn't seem so. They vanished in an electronic blip. End quote. Again, very, very interesting when you start to look into the finances and the unbelievable assets of this charity with over $170 million stashed away. $170 million stashed away in its coffers and continuing to solicit funds at every possible opportunity as if they're about to go bankrupt at any moment. Well... As unbelievable as all of that is, and as absolutely disgusting as it is, it gets even worse. Now, in order to find out about that, we're going to have to switch gears entirely to a subject that you might not have been expecting, but here it is, the OKC bombing. We picked the story up from 2005 when lawyer Jesse Trenadu was coming up with documents related to the death of his brother in Salt Lake City. And again, for people who don't know about the Jesse Trentadu case, that's extremely interesting, extremely important, and there are documents that have come out from that case which are absolutely central to understanding the OKC bombing case, and I will, of course, provide links to those documents, and I would really, truly encourage people who are listening to actually go and take the time to download those to your computer, even if you have no intention of reading them now, because trust me, in 10 years, if there is no such thing as the free and open internet anymore, you will be glad to have a copy of documents like those before they go down the Orwellian memory hole forever. 
That is a reminder that every time you encounter important information, you should be saving it exactly as I should be saving it. And I'm no angel here. I have to admit that I have not had not saved these documents until I just came across them again during the research for this podcast. So I now have done so. But again, we all have to keep in mind just how valuable this access to information is. But in order to get a indication of what these documents contain, let's go to a 2005 article from the McCurdan Daily Gazette, serving McCurdan County, Oklahoma since 1905, and an article by J.D. Cash under the headline, FBI Surrenders Documents That Judge Ordered. Quote, under pressure from a federal judge to produce at least 87 pages of unredacted internal FBI documents related to the 1995 bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building, the Oklahoma City FBI office has filed under seal documents with the Salt Lake City Federal Court that could unlock some of the mysteries surrounding the terrorist attack that left 168 dead. Along with the documents under seal, the agency cited a number of reasons that court should continue to protect persons whose names were originally blacked out of some of the crucial documents, and certain facts the FBI alone possesses about activities at a paramilitary terrorist training camp called Elohim City. Filed in federal court in Salt Lake City, Utah, attorneys for the U.S. Department of Justice argued that the FBI Oklahoma City office should not have to make public details that some believe could prove the FBI had prior knowledge of the plot to bomb the Oklahoma City federal bombing, but somehow failed to stop it. This litigation is part of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed by Salt Lake City attorney Jesse Trinidou. At the center of the controversy is an unclassified copy of a memorandum marked from the director of the FBI that contains several references to an FBI undercover operation at Elohim City before the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. The electronic message was sent to the OK Bomb Investigation Task Force and a select group of FBI offices around the nation some eight months after the 1995 Federal Building bombing. The potentially explosive contents of the teletype, among other things, exposed for the first time an informant operation being conducted by nationally known civil rights lawyer Morris Dees through his organization, the Southern Poverty Law Center. In some detail, the FBI acknowledged the SPLC was engaged in an undercover role where it monitored subjects for the FBI believed to be linked to executed bomber Timothy McVeigh, the white supremacist compound at Elohim City, and the mysterious German national Andreas Karl Strassmeier. End quote. Yes, the convoluted trail does lead right through Elohim City to the Oklahoma City bombing itself, where, guess who? Yes, the SPLC were running informants. And yes, Elohim City is very much a key part in the entire OKC story, with it being completely admitted that, yes, uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh did make a call on April 17th to the Elohim City compound, and he did hang out with FBI informant Andreas Strassmeier. Absolutely a key piece of the puzzle. So to put together some of those pieces, let's listen to a clip of a fascinating interview with Jesse Trenadu from antiwar.com that was conducted on March 30th of this year about the SPLC and their role in the OKC bombing. All right, now, what do you have, and 
you know, I just, uh, I shouldn't make this personal, but I guess I kind of am making it personal. Every day I turn on TV and somebody from the Southern Poverty Law Center is saying that anyone who does not approve of whatever the administration is doing at any given time is basically a neo-Nazi. Uh, basically responsible for the Oklahoma bombing. If you're a member of the Tea Party movement, which I'm certainly not and have not much in common with, but according to them, if you're a member of the Tea Party movement, then, well, you're basically John Doe number two. And, you know, it's extra frustrating to me since John Doe two apparently was an undercover FBI informant and they get to go ahead and continue to, uh, you know, beat any dissent against a democratically controlled government over the head with this bombing. Um, but uh, it's always somebody from the Southern Poverty Law Center who's the guest, the expert guest, who gets to tell us how many hate groups there are in America at any given time and conflate basically anybody to the right of Rachel Maddow together with Timothy McVeigh. And so I'm kind of curious to know uh, what evidence you have, Jesse, that uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center was in any way involved with the neo-Nazi slash cops who did the Oklahoma bombing? Well, it appears, and, and first of all, I agree with you, it's a sad state in our country's history where the voice and opinion means you're attacked from one side or the other. Just We can no longer discuss things as a, a nation or a people. I mean, we've become so divided now uh, that you're, you're either on one side or the other or you're forced into one side or the other. Uh, but as for the Southern Poverty Law Center, they had... And they would, they had apparently informants, another level of informants at Elohim City at the same time that Strassmeyer and, and Carol Howell and the other government informants were there. Uh, these documents that have been produced and not widely reported on refer to the Southern Poverty Law Center reporting to the FBI the information it was receiving from its informants at Elohim City about the bombing. Now, do you know who those informants were? I do not. Are there any indications whether the names are blacked out? The, 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 the FBI pleaded with the judge not to turn over any of the documents because they said they had guaranteed five or six people anonymity and confidentiality, and it would expose them to uh, risk of, of their lives if their names were, were disclosed. And the judge said, well, black out the names but turn the documents over. So I have documents talking about the informants but the informants names are redacted or blacked out so there's they had, really they, by their own mission they've had five or six there that they had promised protection hmm. and but i guess uh are there any other i because you know i remember jd cash talking about this back in the day and i forget whether he said there was any other indication as to the identities of the informants that were working with morris Dees. I suspect that Strassmeyer was reporting to, to the Southern Poverty Law Center, too. Once again, Jesse Trendadu on antiwar.com. And once again, you really have to go and listen to that entire interview and find out more about Jesse Trendadu if it's your first time encountering his information because it is absolutely central to the Oklahoma City bombing case. And his story is quite an interesting one about how seemingly unrelated events can lead one right into the heart of something you would never have expected. Very interesting story and very extremely interesting that the SPLC was an FBI cutout in the Elohim, Elohim City running informants in this white supremacist compound 
whereby they could get information about the Oklahoma City bombing before it happened, and oh, just somehow it didn't quite work out and the bombing went ahead. Well, there's, there's of course, much, much, much more to the Oklahoma City bombing story, but the SPLC running white supremacists at the Elohim City compound is extremely interesting in and of itself. And once again, please go to get and download the, the PDF of the Freedom of Information documents that uh, Jesse Trenadue obtained from the FBI regarding the OK bombing case, because absolutely those documents are extremely interesting to read as heavily redacted as they are. I think there's no doubt that we have shown, to a large extent, exactly what the SPLC is, how it operates, and what it's about in today's episode. The only question is how to confront it, especially when it is still being taken seriously by the corporate media and those who unquestioningly follow the corporate media. And that is a bit of a conundrum because unfortunately there are still too many people who will unquestioningly believe any talking head who comes on their TV and claims to be combating hate groups that are going to be lurking under your bed and coming to steal your rights at any moment when of course we all know it's the government that goes much further and has much more control over those types of things and look for Mark Potok and the SPLC to feature prominently in Chris Matthews' upcoming hit piece on the rise of the new right, which will be airing on uh, the 16th and will probably air 200 more times over the course of the year on MSNBC. So if the question is how to confront this group, well, the answer is the same as it is for how we confront any group that uses lies, dissembling, and mendacity to get their political objectives, and that is simply to expose them to the light of the truth. All right, here is the breaking news, and I'm going to your phone calls. National Security Watch, 60 right-wing terror plots foiled. Now, notice this is all coming out right at one time. When Dick Cheney wanted to come out in 2004 and say, there will guaranteed be a nuke attack by the time of the election. You must vote for George Bush. This is the publication he used to put that propaganda out. Okay. So National Security Watch, 60 right-wing terror plots foiled in the 10 years since the 95 Oklahoma City bombing. Killed 168 people. By the way, that was a federal bombing. We've proven that. Roughly 60 right-wing terrorist plots have been uncovered in the United States, according to an upcoming Report by the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. Yeah, uh, in Oklahoma City, it was the Southern Poverty Law Center running the white supremacist compound. They didn't just infiltrate it, they ran the whole thing. And it turned out McVeigh was a government operative they set up. Let's come out and declassify government documents. So a very nasty organization, to say the least. You know, they always catch firefighters setting fires. You know, it's that same thing. Uh, or... or Department of Homeland Security groups that are, quote, anti-child molestation. It keeps turning out they're child molesters. Southern Poverty Law Center running the white supremacist operations. Kind of like uh, we had the uh, Bum Steer Award in Texas Monthly went to the FBI in, back in the late 90s for creating fake Klan groups and trying to get them to carry out terror attacks. I mean, they don't just go out and find a Klan group and try to sting them. No, no, no. They, you know, they, they try to get them to carry it out. The plots, all foiled by law enforcement, <clears throat> uh, reportedly included violent plans by anti-government militia groups, racist skinhead organizations, and Ku Klux Klan members. And, and they even cite admitted staged events, by the way. 
uh, to use various types of chemical bombs and other weapons. The plots demonstrate the Department of Homeland Security still needs to closely monitor right-wing groups, says Heidi Barrick. Uh, that was the lady that talked to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and said, within hours, oh, the cop shooter, the alleged cop shooter, uh, he, he visited Infowars.com. And then it's in the newspaper that the guy loved me. And then later, the newspaper and everybody have to write other articles saying, actually, he was attacking Alex because Alex doesn't get into the race. Hundreds and hundreds of sites he visited, including CNN and Fox. They've now released that. But they're me. Why? Because I expose their game. That's why the Southern Poverty Law Center hates my guts. Hey, I'm sorry you founded a white supremacist organization uh, that the police reported was planning to bomb OKC, and then we got the federal documents and had the lawyers on about that. I mean, I'm look, I understand you're not too proud of what you're involved in, and it's kind of your business to claim you're fighting extremists, so... You know, needs to, needs to be a threat out there for you to exist. We understand. It's just we understand you're very sick. And we understand that we know, that you know, that we know, that you're aware that we can bring you down. Because the kryptonite uh, to bring down you, Mr. Bizarro, Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Bizarro's kryptonite is the fact that the ADL... Uh, and the Southern Poverty Law Center and others have been caught over and over again running white supremacist groups and other groups as a pretext to violate the Bill of Rights Constitution, to point at the Nazis and others and then try to restrict the Internet and freedom of speech and other things. It's come out in mainstream news, London Guardian and others, that all the major German white supremacist groups that, that are firebombing uh, um, Turks and others, killing them, turned out were German intelligence. We understand how you operate. The poverty pimps and race baiters who hide behind the racist smear against anyone who disagrees with Obama cannot stand the light of scrutiny, and we are exposing their methods and tactics. They can wear their masks, they can be counterfeits, poverty pimps and race baiters, but we will expose them, and they will lose not only their credibility, but their vast fortunes. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for episode 133 of The Corbett Report. Wars and rumors of wars. Smell the